0: this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession.
1: Personally, and from the perspective of my program, we eliminated the GRE a few years ago for the same reasons that we are not very interested in a, in a pre-PA you know kind of exam, something like that.
0: Well, hello and thank you again for joining us. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we're excited to bring back our partner, Stephanie Vandermuelen, to interview Mr. Jonathan Bowser. John is the Associate Dean and Program Director of the Child Health Associate PA Program at the University of Colorado. He is also a Director-at-Large on the Physician Assistant Education Association Board of Directors and a past president of that organization. We talk with John about his path to PA, his program, and his experiences as a national leader during the pandemic. We also talk about his thoughts on the future of our profession, and Steph and John share their thoughts on the pros and cons of a PA admissions examination for the profession, from both their roles as program directors and from their work on the PAEA President's Commission. As always, you can learn more about our guests on our website under the blog section for show notes and a transcript of our discussions published for you at WELL at papathpodcast.com. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Steph and I are so excited to talk to you about your career, your path to becoming a PA, and your prestigious program, the University of Colorado, uh, the Child Health Associate Program. But let's start first with you. Tell us about your personal path to becoming a PA.
1: Sure. Thanks. And and thanks so much for having me, Kevin and Steph. I really appreciate it being here. And I've listened to a number of these episodes and I, I feel like I'm in some amazing company. So uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about some of those folks as we move forward. Um, so my path was, I think, kind of uh, sort of the traditional path for my uh, cohort of PAs. And it's very different now with these younger, newer PAs, but I was a second career guy. I had done um Work in benchtop uh, research. Some, spent a couple of years in the biotech industry. Had really been exploring uh, science. You know, and, and I was a chemist uh, for a while. I was an undergrad chemistry major. I think my my mo is just to to stay curious and keep exploring things. And I got to a place where I thought I'm going to s- probably spend the rest of my life tied to this bench. You know, we called ourselves bench jockeys, and we we are or cell smashers, you know, doing all this benchtop work. And I thought, I don't know that I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to find a little more meaning in human interaction and, and something that, that drives not just my curiosity, but kind of the, the core of, of my values. And so I started to look around and um, I looked at the PT profession. I looked at the MD profession. And a friend of mine who's a PT said, I think you'd, you'd really like the PA profession. And this is a true story. I thought, I think I had some sort of reply like, um, oh, well, I'm not really that into accounting because I did, I had honestly not heard of the PA profession. I thought he was uh, referring to CPAs, like certified public accountants. So I, I didn't really know anything about it. And so I got online Um, and looked around a little bit and online was not much of a thing back then. So it's kind of hard to gather information, but I found uh, some information on our program in in Colorado. I was living in Colorado at the time. And uh, it's that classic story. I think others have talked about it um, on this podcast and uh, and you hear it all the time, but I, the more I looked into it, the more I realized this is, this is such a nice match for me. And I don't, you know, I was daunted by the idea of all those years and expense with medical school but I thought I could get the things I, I wanted to, to get out of this career, I could find that fulfillment in a much shorter uh, and less expensive uh, route. And then I applied to the University of Colorado and the rest, um, as they say, is history.
2: John, tell us a little bit about, you know when you're speaking with applicants to your program, what are, what are some of the most valuable tips that you provide to those applicants to help them along the way?
1: Yeah, great question. We get a lot of those questions, obviously. And our program is a little different than than other programs. I I think, though, the reality is many PA programs have their own flavor. And so I try to help applicants understand specifically what we're looking for in our program. We're a program that does not require any medical experience at all. So we're a zero hours program. That said, we get most of our applicants actually have a lot of Um, background, because they're applying to other programs. But I always emphasize that we're focused really on our mission. And so we want you, we want to see that you have some alignment with our mission. And that is, you know, primary care, primarily focus on underserved populations, both urban and rural. Um, And, and then the the other part of that is, even if you don't have an, if I can't look at your application and trace an obvious path through it that says you have you have that alignment, we really want to see folks that are committed to other people, right? And that can take on many forms. We look a lot at volunteer, the, the volunteer experience of our applicants and what they've done in their communities, whether their community is their undergrad institution, whether it's a church community, whether it's the Boys and Girls Club, it, You know, we don't really discriminate Amongst those different kinds of involvements, but the applicant who just dabbles and does, you know, I volunteered here for a couple hours and there for a couple hours, and I tried this out. I think looks less committed in our eyes to, to pair with somebody who's really done things in, in a more sustained way, if that makes sense. And then the other thing that's really important to us, and I think this is a more, this is probably more general to most or all PA, PA programs, is you, you really need to. Be able to demonstrate that you understand what you're getting yourself into here, right? we It's a committing road. We're a three-year program. It's its a ton of work. You need to know what you're getting into. You need to have some understanding of the profession. So shadowing is really important. It's hard to shadow in, in this current era, but even interviewing PAs, doing your research, we really want to know that you, that you you've done your homework and you know what you're getting yourself into. That's important to us.
2: Talk to me a little bit about the virtual shadowing trend that we're starting to see. You know, COVID, I think, brought about a a number of new technologies and and new platforms for things. And so I know at least at my program, we're starting to see a lot of folks that are submitting applications that have virtual shadowing. Tell me your thoughts on the virtual shadowing experience.
1: You know, I feel the pain of these applicants who just can't find shadowing opportunities, particularly in the the pandemic in light of the pandemic and the restrictions there. But even before that, I think it it it's become it's sort of a supply demand issue, right? And there's just are are only so many available moments in the lives of these PAs to take on, you know, potential applicants who want to shadow. And, uh, you know, we have many PAs in our community who are really committed to, to that, but it's just, they they just don't have a ton of bandwidth. They're very, very busy in their clinical lives. So I think the virtual shadowing idea is, to me, it's more, I align that more with the idea of, you know, I encourage our applicants to, to reach out to PAs, to reach out to to physicians, to reach out to other folks in uh, healthcare settings, and see if they, you know, can find some time to, you know, can I buy you a coffee? Can we can we find time to Zoom where I can just ask you some questions and get a feel for um, for what it is that you do, or what it is that the PAs in your practice do. And that, that I would call virtual shadowing in a way, it's not the same as, as in-person shadowing, but I think we also need to be sensitive to the, how hard it is. The other part of it is, I, I do think shadowing in some ways, I think Mike DeRosa talked about this a little bit, shadowing is, is kind of a privilege in some ways. Right, You have to be connected to, um, one, you have to have free time to be able to do it, And, and you have to be connected to people that have the bandwidth to enable you to shadow. I think that is a privilege in the same way that Mike DeRosa from Samuel Merritt on this podcast talked about how medical experience, you know, we don't require medical experience in my program. I think getting medical experience, there's some privilege involved in that also. So there may be some good things that come out of this pandemic. You know, we've certainly seen some frustrating things, but I think a lot of programs, for example, have figured out that virtual interviews, while strange to adjust to and uncomfortable in some ways, probably do create a more equitable environment, a more cost-effective environment for applicants, and there's some real advantage there. But there's a lot to that, to the getting the experiences that programs are looking for. And it's, it's hard for applicants now, more, probably more than it ever has been.
0: Similar, John and Steph, I'm going to turn the tables just a little bit because the two of you were both on the President's Commission that looked at a PA entrance exam. And that's another area in our, in our country that people are talking about, whether, for example, the GRE exam is being waived by a lot of schools and removed as a barrier related to historical marginalization of communities and, and educational disadvantages. And we have a PA entrance exam that has entered into the, our space that uh, some people believe is necessary to identify students that uh, can be successful in PA education. But the President's Commission, which was started by PAEA uh, at least five or six years ago, took a very strong look at this, and you two were part of the, the commission that published a paper on this. Do you, do you mind sharing your thoughts on that from your with your hats on as uh, program directors?
1: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll start that one off, Steph. I'm speaking with my program director hat, not my PAEA hat. I, I you know There's a, a, a sort of whole subcontext to this that has to do with the, the marketing of exams and the you know and, and the free market uh, environment where people can can certainly market exams in in ways that they see fit. Personally, and from the perspective of my program, we eliminated the GRE a few years ago for the same reasons that we are not very interested in a in a pre PA you know kind of exam something like that. And I don't think we're going to go down that path anytime soon. I think. We, did, we looked at about 10 years of data in our program and found that the GRE wasn't predictive and didn't actually help us anyway. So that presumption was false to begin with and then the whole issue of those standardized exams um, as a barrier to diversity was an added you know, it's sort of two separate but related issues the issue of equity and accessibility but also the issue of a debatable predictive capacity for those exams so that those are my views from from my program
2: And i would say speaking from the perspective of that President's Commission paper, you know, we, we looked into this topic pretty deeply. And what we really found, I don't, you know, I don't know that we made a conclusive decision one way or the other. The question really of the President's Commission was, do we need one? Does the profession need one? And that was really the, the question that we were trying to answer. And I think the answer was, we think it's premature to even be able to say yes or no, because at the end of the day, the profession collectively has not decided on a standardized or an agreed upon set of skills and knowledge base that matriculants need to have to be successful in a PA program. And so, you know, until you have a conclusive set that all or most programs can determine, this is the knowledge we believe all applicants need to have so that you kind of, I mean, that's the definition of a standardized test, right, is that there's a standard set of knowledge and skills that all programs agree upon that the applicants need to have to be successful. And that doesn't exist. And so, you know, to date, because we don't have that agreed upon set of competencies or skills that applicants need to have, then it's really impossible to devise any test that that tests for those. And so, you know, I, I think that we felt like, any exam that may be out there at the moment really can't be judging something that would be judging all applicants across all programs and the, you know, the prerequisites that programs would feel would be necessary for, for students. So while a pre-A, pre-PA entrance exam right now might give you some answers about some set of metrics that a, that a, a test is testing for, are those the metrics that you feel are important for your program and for your matriculants? And, and, you know, we feel like that's, that's not really a standardized exam until we have some standardized agreement across the profession and across programs. And so, you know, that was really kind of the conclusion of the, of the President's Commission paper.
0: John, can you talk a little bit more about your program? You have a 33-month-long program. Uh, what is unique about your program that you'd like to share with applicants as they're considering uh, applying to your school?
1: Sure, yeah. So we're 35 months in length, um, and we, we have a long history. So we were one of the early programs. We were founded in 68, took our first class starting in 69, and the, the vision for the program was, was different. You know, the, these early programs, there was Duke and there was Med-X, and those programs were largely built around the idea of taking uh, medical corpsmen, and it was all men at the time uh, and re- with a very deep set of skills and kind of retooling them to enter the workforce the, the non, you know, the civilian workforce. Henry Silver, who founded our program, had a very different idea. And he, a little history here, he uh, and Loretta Ford, a nurse at the University of Colorado, started the first nurse practitioner program in the country here at the University of Colorado. It was a pediatric nurse practitioner program. And the model that they envisioned was that there would be PNP programs and there would be other kinds of programs, neonatal and adult and critical care NP programs, and that is how the NP training world has evolved. Dr. Silver's vision was that the PA profession would involve in, would evolve in that way also, and that there would be a child health associate program and an orthopedic associate uh, or a child health associate profession, an orthopedic associate um, uh, segment of the, the profession. Uh, and there was even an OB/GYN associate program at this institution for a couple of years, and it didn't it didn't take hold. He uh, that that model didn't stick, and so we became a PA program in 1981 because it just didn't seem like anybody was was going down that path. But we we kept our name, so he, we sort of keep the Child Health Associate name as a historical acknowledgement of that history. We are like all PA programs; we're a generalist training program. But some of the other things that um, Henry thought were important, one, he thought that um, he really believed that you didn't need medical experience for this program, that we could, we were looking for the right people with the right mindset, uh, and, the, and uh, we could take that person and mold them into a, um, a health professional rather than having someone who needed experience in the health professions. And that was very different from the other two programs that, you know, those initial programs at MedEx and at at Duke. And so because of that, he also felt it was important to have more extensive training in, in terms of time. And so our program initially, now we've changed our curriculum completely, but our program initially and for many years, the first two years were basically the first two years of our medical school. So it was an entire year of basic science, foundational stuff, and then a second year of more clinical applied medicine with clinical experiences sort of sprinkled through. And then the third year was a full clinical year. We've maintained the length of our program and that general approach, but as I mentioned, our curriculum looks very different now. So that's some of the history. So back to your question about what students need to know, I think, or applicants rather need to know. One is this is not a typical program. It's a different feel. So you, one, you need to be interested in being here for three years. We have, I, I think there are people who don't apply to this program simply because they don't want to take three years. And I think that's a very um, important thing to understand about your, yourself if you're applying to programs. We are a three-year program. It, it's three intense years. The other thing about our program that I think people need to understand is we have that child health associate name, but we're not a pediatric program per se. We, we have extra training in pediatrics. Um, everyone gets an extra pediatric rotation. Everyone gets extra didactic work in pediatrics. But the majority of our graduates don't go into pediatrics. Um, years and years ago, they did, but that's not true anymore.
2: John, we know that PA school is difficult, regardless of whether you attend a program that's 24 months or a program that's 35 months. What do you perceive as some of the toughest challenges that today's PA students face and, and what advice do you give to them to help them navigate their PA education?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things that we've been really interested in over the years is how students manage stress is what student burnout looks like and, and what we can do structurally in the program to mitigate some of that. And so when we designed this um, curriculum of ours, We looked at it from a couple of perspectives. We looked at it from learning theory, constructivist learning theory, and we were really interested in in kind of doing it right in that regard. But we also um, looked at it in in terms of burnout, student burnout, and how we could create a curriculum that is perhaps less likely to um, create student burnout. And in fact, my associate director, Jackie Sivahop, did her doctoral work on student burnout in our program. And we We also looked at cognitive load theory, which is really really informs our curricular model. And the idea of cognitive load theory is that, if I'm sure you're familiar with this theory, but the idea is that the, essentially, the brain can only work on so much at a given time. And if your brain is full of all sorts of other things while you're also trying to learn to be a clinician, it overloads your brain and makes uh, for a very stressful learning environment. And it actually makes for less durable learning. You, you just can't make those connections and you can't create longer term learning that you can retrieve at a later time. So I, I think one of the things that our students are challenged with is time management. Most of our, our students are really good time managers. There's, there's just so much on their plate. And then there's also kind of existential concerns that our students have about what will the what will my career be like? Will I find a job? Uh, it, you know, er, is is this clinical rotation going to prepare me for the thing I want to do for the rest of my life, or, or things like that? So I I think th- those are some really big stressors, and I think I mean this is obvious I think to everyone, but the pandemic has really. Um, created some unique challenges, and it has exacerbated some of those things, but also created brand new concerns. And and I'll just mention one of the things that we really are struggling with right now um, is our our students' ability um, to feel like they're part of a community. Um, I think that's really been a challenge in the pandemic, and we're finding our students have returned to the classroom, but it persists. it's It's a way of being that it is hard for us to get out of now because, you know, as you know, we're sort of one foot in the pandemic and one foot out. and that's a very strange place to be. Um, and we thought we would jump back into this environment where we're back in the classroom and everything would just feel normal. And it really doesn't. it's really it's really difficult, actually.
0: John, you and Steph actually have been working on some things collaboratively as programs. And so, uh, you know, I've always looking at the way that we do things in PA education and wonder why we duplicate so many different things. And and of course, that goes to the cost of education for every student. Uh, could you two talk about your collaborative projects that you've been doing and, and how that might impact not only your schools, but how other schools could take notice and look for ways to support one another?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in first, Steph. Um, we've We've started working together when Creighton was, I, I think when Creighton was just at the sort of fetal stage of development, because uh, maybe not maybe not quite that early, Steph, you can confirm that, but Steph and I have had this long-term connection, we've known each other from way back, and as Steph was tasked with creating a new program in the medical school setting... And because of relative geographic proximity, it just seemed to make sense that we should, we had a lot in common and we should try to work together. And and the other part of it is our faculty and their faculty way back in the day, a bunch of their faculty and a bunch of our faculty have had these connections. So there's a lot of comfort there and a lot of, you know just a a sort of ease of kind of a communion that we had together. And as we started to see the Creighton program evolve, it seemed like there were some places where um we could learn from them because they were they were in this really dynamic, innovative place. We were undergoing a lot of change with our admissions process, our, our curriculum. Uh, so there were a lot of opportunities for us to learn from them. And I think the, the flip was true also. I think we were able to help them with their with their admissions process, for example, and some other things. And it's just been really healthy and, and, I, and fun, actually. And, and I think one of the things that, that I've talked about for years, you know, in my leadership roles, et cetera, is PA programs notoriously all reinvent the same wheels in isolation, right? I think it's much more so than some other health professions. And I, I, part of it is because PA programs are all you know. The, the saying you've seen one PA program, you've seen one PA program. We're all a little different. We all have some of us are a lot different. We all have our own flavors. But there's also this. There's some other things I think that go that go into that. But we do notoriously in, reinvent the wheel a hundred times over in parallel. And so, so I think Steph and I have had an interest in trying not to do that and trying to learn, maybe share, you know, lift, help each other lift. Uh, the weight sometimes.
2: And I think to reflect upon that, I think John makes a really good point. John and I both sat as president of PAEA. And so that really allowed us to sit in a space where we saw PA programs across the country. And I think we had a unique view of how folks are recreating the same wheel. And so as an acknowledgement to that, you know, as as I was tasked with my team to start a brand new program, I was fortunate to have a very experienced team, but I also recognize that, you know, to have carte blanche and to be able to start a brand new program, you build upon the things that you know, but you also, uh, shame on me if I didn't reach out to some other extremely experienced programs to say, hey, what are, you know, what are best practices? What has worked well for you? And to be able to meld those best practices from what my team knew from previous experiences and what his team knows from their experience was it was, it was a privilege and it was really exciting. And I think, I think if this kind of relationship is, can be an exemplar for PA programs to really fashion, fashion, a a collegial and professional relationship with one another, I I think you've heard me say it before, but a rising tide floats all boats. And I think if we, if we work together, we can all be, we can all be better than we should, we should do that in every way we can. Talk a little bit about the future of the profession. And the directions that you see, if you put that crystal ball to work and try to see around the corner for the way the PA profession is headed in the next five to 10 years, reflect on that a little bit and tell me how your program is thinking about that and trying to proactively prepare for the changes that you see coming down the pike in the PA profession.
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good question, and it's probably it's tempting. To say this is one of the more tumultuous times in our history as a profession, because I think um, you could go back and people from various eras would say the same thing. But it feels, you know, being in this profession for over 20 years, it feels like this is a, a time of immense change. And, and not all of it is, um, is completely straightforward. It's pretty, some of it feels pretty daunting. So, of course, there is the name change. There is a real push for increased autonomy in the practice space. And that, you know, we see that with OTP, optimal team practice over the, the past few years. Name change, there's the, the issue of a, a doctoral degree and where that fits in the equation. And one of the things that I think is really helpful perhaps critical to understand is all of those changes that are being pushed in the practiced environment come back to programs and that you know, we have to really try to anticipate where the profession is going and get ready to prepare people for a different environment if that's what's needed. And I think PS are heading into well we've been heading into a, a a different practice environment for a number of years. One of the things, for example, that I've seen is that PAs are being asked to do more and more right out of the gate, right? So they come out of PA school and these hospital systems say, hey, this is a cost-effective way to, to provide critical care access, right? Well, you know, if you have a a PA fresh out of school and you're going to throw them into a complex critical care environment, that may be something programs need to understand, right? And and one of the things that, as an example of how how that's changed, is the number of at least in my region, the number of postgraduate programs is is just exponentially increasing, and the 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 way it's happening here is very organic. It's uh one you know a hospital. System, for example, our partner hospital, University of Colorado Hospital, they there's a, a very successful hospitalist postgraduate fellowship or residency. I mean, those terms are used interchangeably. So one-year program, it's excellent. Other departments within the hospital system see that and go, Oh, well, this looks good. And and the, the premise of that particular fellowship program is it's a pipeline for employment you know it's a way for these hospitals to employ pas and tra- and get them up to speed and so other departments now or cr- and other hospitals within our region are cr- creating these fellowship programs and I think they're variable quality probably but um, it's definitely a trend I don't see that trend going away so one of the things to your to your question about what we're doing as a program one of the things that we have to do is is try to create, opportunities for our student. We'll, we'll try to create sort of the baseline that makes our students flexible, that allows our students to be flexible. But there's only so much you can do. You, I can't create a critical care PA in a PA program. Like that is something that, that the, the profession, my program, any program was never really set up to do so creating partnerships with our hospitals creating you know we've started to create some tracks we have a critical care track for example we have some other tracks rural and urban and global tracks but creating tracks that that can sort of connect with the marketplace the challenge though for us is our core as a program is primary care is 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 all of these things where we see the PA profession and medicine in general going away from. So our our local hospital systems are closing down some of their, or they're they're sort of undervaluing, I think, some of their primary care um, sites, or they're seeing those as referral centers, mostly for the the parts of the the hospital system that make money, right? And that's been a real challenge for us. So on the one hand, we want to prepare our students for the environment they're going out into and for the market that's there, the job market that's there. But we also feel very passionately about primary care, and and you know th- that's also a market force that we don't have a lot of influence over. So here we are,
2: John. Let's talk a little bit about your national and international work with PAEA and South Africa. Sure, I. So
1: I'm I'm going to start with us with the South Africa partnership. It is a little bit water under the bridge for us. That partnership ended for all intents and purposes um, in 2014, 2015. But it, it was a, it was an interesting um, experience for us. And again, this this goes back to saying yes to things and being adventurous as an educator and as a program and trying things. So we had that there was a competitive application. A number of years ago, I want to say it was about 2009, maybe. And our program, uh, Anita Glickin, the program director at the time, took the lead, wrote a really good grant um, for with a a group called the International Alliance. Uh, Wait, what is it? I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to botch completely botch the acronym, but it's the IAHA, and they're a group out of D.C. that was looking to do what they call twinning, where they partner um, programs globally with American programs for, for some shared learning. And so we we um, were awarded a grant um, that partnered us with a school in, in the Eastern Cape of South Africa called Walter Sisulu University. And they were developing the South Africa was developing a new profession called the clinical associate profession, clinas and um, Walter Sisulu University was one of the three institutions that were doing that. So they partnered us with Walter Sisulu, and we um, had a number of trips, twinning trips where we went there and they we brought their faculty here to learn it to share experiences to create those partnerships. And it was it was very fruitful and successful that that program is doing well. Uh, it got to the point where they were on their way and didn't really, you know, it's it sort of wound its way, wound wound down in a very natural way. But we we really enjoyed that that ability to work with colleagues in a very different environment with a very different set of challenges. And act and the clinical associate profession is very different in some important structural ways from the PA profession. And so um, it, it really the, the benefits. You know, honestly, we when we went into that partnership, we thought I think that we would it would really be a more unidirectional exchange of learning that we would be helping them, but we really learned a lot from them as well. So it was a really nice partnership. the The other part of your question was about national involvement, and this is another thing where I, if I'm sounding like a broken record, I, I guess I am, but I uh, I really feel like saying yes to stuff and being adventurous is a part of my credo, it's how how I live. And I, I encourage faculty at every level to get involved with national leadership, with local leadership, with leadership within the institution and the program. And I had that same encouragement from my program director, from Anita Glicken, she said, "You know, you should volunteer for something. Just apply to PAEA, get on a committee." So I got on a committee. I got on another committee. I decided to run for the board because I just saw what the the board was doing. In fact, uh, Kevin Low Henry was on the board at the time when I was being inspired. Steph, I think you were just coming on the board, and I uh, I just thought, what a what a phenomenal group of people, and what a great association. And I want I want to be involved. With this, and and really get to know the the national landscape, and and really hopefully influence the profession in some kind of positive way. And so I did all of those things, and it just one thing led to another, and I ended up on the board, ended up serving as the president of PAEA, and it was it was really everything I hoped it would be, and more. I really. Developed a community of leaders nationally that I'm still very very close with. I learned so much from them. They are my mentor group in so many ways. They're also my psychological counseling group, I think, at times. And we really, you know, Steph, you and I talk a fair amount. And I, those are all relationships that came from me jumping into leadership. And I didn't see myself as a leader at all. You know, I know Kevin on this podcast. You talk with a number of people about leadership and what it means to lead. I listened to the the recent, a relatively recent interview you had with the Stanford crew. What a great group. And, and they talked about leadership and this idea, this much broader version of leadership is really important to me. I didn't see myself as a leader. PAEA is where I I came to identify myself as a leader. And, and I really um, I'm, I'm really appreciative of that. John, when you look back at your PAEA work,
0: what are you most proud
1: of? You know, I I um, boy, that's a great question. So I, I think one of the things I'm I'm actually really proud. There's there are a number of things I'm proud of. Um, but one of the things I'm most proud of is the year that I was president of PAEA, the association had an immense transition. So we had a, a um, a CEO who is a 27-year leader of PAEA, and the first the inaugural leader of PAEA, Timmy Barwick. And she was stepping down. And that is talk about enormous shoes to fill. And so during that happened to fall in the year of my presidency. And I got to work with a very talented interim director in, in Sarah Fletcher, and really got to oversee this the search and be involved with the search for her replacement and the transition of PAEA from a former era to a new era. And that was a very challenging year and very, but also very rewarding year and a year where I feel like I I learned a lot about myself and grew a lot. So I think that's one of the things I feel really proud of is being able to sort of steward that transition.
2: Well, John, as we near the end of our time together, is there anything else that you hope to share with us that we, we haven't discussed today?
1: I don't, you know, I don't know that there's anything, anything in particular The the one thing I will say is I give me an opportunity to talk about my curriculum and my faculty and I'll go on and on and on and on. We have this new curriculum, not new anymore, four years in. We've been very excited about it. It's very different. And we we've been having a lot of fun with it. And by fun, I mean, it's been intensely stressful and a ton of work. And my faculty constantly um, toe the line of burnout and um, frustration and, and, you know, superimposed on that was the pandemic. You know, we're sort of just getting to the point where we feel like we're able to be successful. And then the pandemic strikes and it creates all of that stress and tension and the inability for us to, to be together physically. And so there's uh, it's just been a very stressful time. But we're really proud of what we're doing. And, I, you know, I I have already talked about the curriculum a little bit, so I don't need to go on and on about that.
0: If you could go back in time, John, knowing what you know now, would you have held off on that curriculum change given the pandemic coming or?
1: No, I don't think I would have wanted to forestall it by a year. Our, our medical school, it launched a new curriculum this year, 2021, 2022 academic year. Their their experience has been daunting to say the least, because of all the challenges around the pandemic. So I think we sort of squeezed it in there before the pandemic really hit. We had, it was launched and fully functional a year before the pandemic hit. So that was a relief. I don't think I would do anything differently. I, it's the classic thing though. Like we, you know, looking back, we, it was a ton of work. It was an incredible transition. It was, it was hard. We had faculty who left uh, who just didn't want to be a part of it, and it was tough on them. And um, but looking back, I, I I feel why didn't we do this five years earlier? Like it, it's just something we should have done. Uh, we needed to do when we finally did it. It was all the pain and agony that we thought it would be, but it's really it, it's really transformed the program in positive ways.
2: Well, John, thank you so much on behalf of Kevin and and I and the PA Path podcast. I I, I know you to be someone of boundless energy. And for all the time that I've known you, that energy has been focused on the betterment of the of the PA profession and of your program. So congratulations on the success of your program so far. And I, I look forward to continued success of your program, as well as watching your leadership journey and where that takes you in the future. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks
1: so much for having me. It's just a pleasure to talk to you, too. I, You, know, you both are, are friends of mine and colleagues, but also uh, mentors, people I really look up to. So it's been a privilege.
0: Well, we'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Jonathan Bowser, for joining us from the University of Colorado. John gave us some great insights into his program, his path to becoming a PA, and some of the challenges that our profession is currently facing. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Carolyn bradley Guidry who's the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Affairs for the School of Health Professions at the UT Southwestern Medical Center. We speak with Dr. Bradley Guidry about her path to becoming a PA, about the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our profession, and about the UT Southwestern PA program. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.